Welcome to New Perceptions Podcast, the official podcast of the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry. The New Perceptions Podcast is for education, information, and aim purposes. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of hosts and guests and do not reflect the official policies made. This podcast in the Journal of Psychedelic Psychiatry does not support or condone the illegal use, distribution, or sale of psychedelic substances. Furthermore, the topics discussed should not be solely used to diagnose, treat, or prevent disease or conditions, and the reading of listening to this podcast does not constitute a doctor relationship. The content discussed does not constitute medical advice, and specific medical questions should be directed toward or personal health care professional. Today on the podcast if you are listening to us on the journal of psychedelic psychiatry website it would be easier for you and better for us if you would please consider following us on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you will be notified when the latest episode airs i am dr tyler chervested editor-in-chief of the journal and it's my privilege to welcome you to this author interview edition of the podcast Rose Jade obtained a BS in biology from MIT in 1992, a JD from Northeastern University in 1995, an MSW from Portland State University in 2011, and a certificate in psychedelic-assisted therapies and research from CIS in 2018. She currently works as a licensed clinical social worker and massage therapist. Her article, Integrating Psychedelic Use, a cautionary note for licensed healthcare providers, can be found in our latest issue. Rose, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for your article. Really appreciate it. And, you know, for our listeners out there that maybe haven't had a chance to read your article yet, could you kind of tell them what it's all about? Well, it's written particularly for healthcare professionals who are involved with or considering getting involved with clients who use psychedelics outside of FDA-approved clinical trials. And that's primarily those therapists who believe that offering post-dose integration services is a great idea and unquestionably ethical. Um, I found that this conclusion is usually based on their own positive underground experiences. Um, But, you know, these drugs are still illegal to possess. And my intention in writing the article was to help uh, remind these therapists that um, we're still in the early phase of evidence-based practices regarding psychedelic-assisted therapy. And we have, as professional healthcare workers, um, a fiduciary duty of care towards our patients. And we have an obligation to act in the best interest to avoid causing biotogenic harm. So I wanted to remind people of their legal and ethical vulnerabilities if they are out promoting or endorsing underground psychedelic Oh, that's great. And so what led to your interest in psychedelic therapies just in general? Um, it, it, it's been a combination of my personal experience, um, both with psychedelics and um, although I've never had an opportunity to participate in a clinical trial, so that would be referring to recreational use, um, but also coupled with my professional training and experiences in biology, law, and psychotherapy. Um, I've always believed that psychedelics, when used voluntarily and under guidance and within a safe setting, um, can offer people a unique opportunity for exploration and growth. And I I wrote my first paper on this subject back in 2011 when I was in graduate school for social work, and that was a guide for healthcare professionals about working with clients who happen to use magic mushrooms for spiritual enlightenment. And then fast forward to 2017, I was looking around for continuing education courses. That's an ongoing license requirement. And I found the uh, certificate program at the California Institute for Integral Studies. It offered a lot of CEU credits (laughs) and an opportunity (laughs) 
to hear and talk with research scientists and clinical trial participants about this current research. So I couldn't find anything better, so I signed up. <laughs> awesome. Well, in your article, you talk about this intersection between psychedelic assistive therapy and a professional license, and you've kind of touched on that already, but could you kind of tell the listeners out there what it was that compelled you to write about this and, and just the kind of particularities associated with this topic? Yeah, um, it, it really came out of my um, work in the certificate program because that program is designed to bring people from all over the world, basically, uh, for six weekends three-day weekend, and so you're meeting with people and talking with people face-to-face, -face. and um, not all of them, but many of those other healthcare professionals would talk really freely about their own current underground use of psychedelics and how wonderful they thought the drugs were and how they were participating or encouraging or assisting their patients to partake in them. and. Uh, you got to understand, prior to becoming a social worker, I had been a criminal defense attorney, um, <laughs> and I'm not practicing law anymore, but it was really shocking to hear credentialed doctors and therapists talking about this stuff, like it was totally acceptable professional behavior. I'm not being judgmental. I'm, I, I'm just saying that from, from inside out, from me, it was really shocking to hear this. And when I would voice my curiosity about why they were so willing to risk their license in, these, in this way, many seemed to have no comprehension of the risks they were posing to themselves or their livelihood or to their patients. And I would end up in, in these long conversations, typically one-on-one, -on -one, you know, down a hallway, um, trying to talk to people about their licensing boards, how they operate, what the good moral character criteria is for getting credentials. And many of them were just clueless or really dismissive of all of this. And I got tired of having the conversation, so I wrote the article. <laughs> and then I, I, I updated it and made it more formal for you guys, for your journey. Yeah. And, and so to kind of segue onto that, you know, we're seeing that in cities across the country, they're having these decriminalization of psychedelic mushrooms, or we're having medicalization of substances like ketamine, and, and we're going into phase two and phase three trials with you know, psilocybin and MDMA. And so what are things that healthcare providers out there should be concerned about, or at least thinking about as this starts to take place in society? Well, you know, primarily I'm concerned about patient safety. I mean, this is not a conversation about what you or I or my neighbor chooses to do individually in their personal life. This is a conversation about how healthcare professionals treat their patients. Okay. I just want to be yeah. clear about that. It's where ethics and fiduciary duties come in. So you're really talking about two sets of circumstances. Assuming someday we have widespread legal access to pharmaceutical-grade psychedelics, providers can still cause harm by overstating the alleged benefits of psychedelics, and similar, similarly by minimizing or omitting the risk. So if the provider is not well-informed about what these drugs are and how we think they work, and if they're not well informed about how FDA clinical trials operate and how to understand, analyze, and critique the protocols and data coming out of those clinical trials, the provider can cause harm by misinforming the patient. And this prevents the patient from giving informed consent. 
So it's really important to acknowledge that we just don't know enough yet about how these drugs really work, how they help, who they help, how long that help lasts, and what other variables are involved. Now, I'm the first to admit that in some of these trials and under some of these protocols, the results have been very encouraging. Now, the other scenario, assuming no access to pharmaceutical-grade drugs, which is the situation we have today outside of those clinical trials, mm -hmm. um, providers can cause additional harm by encouraging the patient to engage in criminal activity in order to try and obtain drugs. Because outside of those clinical trials, those drugs are illegal. So you have to possess them in order to ingest them. There's no getting around that. Right. So encouraging someone to buy powerful drugs on the street or to go grow or try and pick their own mushrooms not only raises the risk of the client being arrested, it also raises the risk of the client ingesting poison. And the client, under those circumstances, is likely going to be hiding what they're doing from their friends and family, and they, need, uh, they may end up needing help, maybe unable to get it. And, um, you know, there's really real risks involved in taking drugs. It's not like drinking a cup of coffee or taking a baby aspirin. It's an altered state of consciousness that also has additional physiological effects on your heart and you know, your, your whole body. My main point is that when a, when a person comes to you for help because you have a health care credential, you owe them this heightened duty of care. And given the current circumstances, there are reasonable questions surrounding whether or not it's ethical to offer even so-called post-dose integration sessions. You know, my, my, my litmus test for professionals is whether or not they've discussed what they're doing with their license board. Most of those who I've asked said no, and they're not going to. So what does that tell you? Yeah, I, that touches on a whole bunch of, of great points. You know, that's kind of the purpose of our journal here is to make sure that as this transition happens, is that at least for the psych, psychiatric community that we have, standards and practices in place to kind of deal with with those things that you just brought up and then to kind of touch on a couple of things just from a medical standpoint in, in clinical practice is a lot of the patients that are going to be trying to use these medications already have psychiatric diagnoses and they are already taking psychiatric medications which can have um, drug-drug interactions with psychedelic substances that can lead to life-threatening situations and so I think everybody being aware of that and not just advocating for free-range use of these things is, is definitely the route we want to go. And kind of in that same vein, what are your thoughts or concerns about the medicalization of psychedelic substances in general? Well, um, my hat's off to MAPS and all those other philosophic organizations that have spent so much money and energy to research whether these substances have medicinal value and um, to have gathered all the necessary, unimpeachable, indisputable you know, empirical evidence to get them moved out of Schedule 1. I mean, that I am confident that there is medical value to these drugs. Um, and proving that medicinal value is the only realistic strategy for getting them out of Schedule 1, because abolishing Schedule 1 itself has not garnered any significant public um, interest. Uh, but that said, um, I'm not in support of... Um, sort of medical corralling of the psychedelic experience, um, especially given the lengthy history of human use of psychedelic substances um, in various cultures going back thousands of years. 
I don't support conditioning the availability and use of pharmaceutical-grade psychedelics to only those people who have financial and physical access to a prescriber and a medical diagnosis and a licensed facility and the time and supports to attend an approved treatment protocol. So although I'm in support of medicinal uses, I believe that they should be broader, there should be more broader access, um, but I also believe that there should be limits. Like I don't think minors should be able to buy them. I think there should be quality control and legal consequences for endangering yourself or others. But the biggest, my biggest concern is that, um, you know, they'll only, you know, they'll only be seen as um, safe in a medical setting, which, you know, we have millions of people taking these drugs in America, <laughs> you know, right. so we have to address that. And simply telling people that they only have medicinal value under this, this very narrow, costly set of circumstances, I don't think is or realistic. Yeah, I, I think the medicalization, legalization, decriminalization debate is, is just a fascinating one, and uh, I'll be very interested to see how it kind of plays out over the, the coming years. Kind of moving on, from a, from a more psychological standpoint, what concerns you about the use of psychedelics in the clinical setting and in more particularly like an outpatient practice, which is where I can kind of see this trending, at least from a psychiatric standpoint, where I think it would be utilized much like ketamine is today or other, you know, brief interventions like TMS along those lines? Um, my, I would say my biggest concern is, um, one, safety issues. Um, the other one is patients getting ripped off financially. Um, we still don't know a lot about how healing takes place, whether without the addition of drugs, including psychedelics. Um, it seems to me that most medications work by masking symptoms. And whether that should count as healing is a matter of personal opinion and public policy, you know. Um, but most of our mental health meds can be ingested and the person can still function. You know, they can drive, they can go to work, they can go home and care for their family. But psychedelics create an altered state of consciousness, and the outer limits of which are hard to describe, hard to control for, hard to predict. They are not for everyone. And inducing an altered state of consciousness presents risks for the attending healthcare providers, um, to the patient, and to the broader community. So if the healthcare practitioner doesn't understand why we develop peer review protocols, or for some reason refuses to follow them, this creates a bigger risk. And you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the protocols. Um, protocols are often expensive and tedious to follow, and they tend to get dropped um, when you um, start working with patients who don't have funds. And um, the individual practitioner or the clinic owner is going to want to um, make as much money as they can, and that pressure, um, you see that pressure come out in marketing, staffing, mm -hmm. pricing, and quality control. So the risk is exaggerating the alleged benefits and minimizing the risks at the at the outpatient level in order to attract clients. That's standard practice in America for capitalist retail-level medical services. And it's also something we see in the psychedelic tourist community right now outside the U.S. Yeah. Um, personally, I find the assertion by some that ketamine is psychedelic to be completely self-serving. 
and it's mm-hmm. very confusing to the lay public because, and I'm not asserting that ketamine therapy is never helpful, but I do wonder how much of the current demand for retail level ketamine assisted psychotherapy is bootstrapping on the favorable publicity about the FDA trials coming out of psilocybin and MDMA. Those are very different drugs. Ketamine, psilocybin, and MDMA are all very different. The research protocols are different, and we don't have a lot of really good data yet. So my question is, is this really being understood by clinicians and carefully explained to the client? You know, are those differences really on the table, and how is the client able to make informed consent? If they walk into a clinic, you know, after reading Michael Pollan's book, for instance, Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is what I want. Um, what are, what's the what's the gatekeeper at that clinic going to tell that client? You know, where mm-hmm. the where's the oversight for that? I have no idea. Yeah, I, I think that those are all great points. Uh, with your your knock on ketamine, I would definitely tell you that from our journal standpoint, that it is very self-serving that we talk about it in our journal because, you know, it it has psychedelic-like effects. Is the way I I characterize it. And we do use it to kind of talk about it as a model, but I wouldn't necessarily classify it as a classical psychedelic, but it, it, it does serve some purposes. And unfortunately, I think, you know, with the more recent evidence, it hasn't quite shown to be as effective as, as we would have hoped, um, except outside of suicidality, where it seems to have a, a brief limited effect. And so, yeah. again, all great points. Kind of shifting gears to go back to the integration services that you had talked about. Um, this was a large part of your article, and you gave numerous examples of how these integration-based services could be reported to a licensing board. I was just curious if these were all more theoretical or if you'd actually seen or read of real-world examples where this had happened. Well, um, in part, yes. I tried to put together a, a you know, kind of a buffet <laughs> of yeah. things that happened. And, and in my legal experience and my experience working with and sort of observing license boards, I, none of these are exaggerated. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, in 2008, there was sadly and unexpectedly a California man who died 45 minutes in an underground magic mushroom session. Um, so to my knowledge, um, and I do not have complete knowledge of that of that occurrence, but to my knowledge, mm-hmm. there were no credentialed people involved. So there were there have been no complaints to a board about that, to my knowledge. But it could easily have been, right? Yes. And um, there have been, you know, MAPS has been very transparent. They had a trained credentialed psychedelic therapist who ended up, it came out, was having a sexual relationship with one of the patients in the trials. Mm-hmm. You know, no profession is immune from human error or malfeasance, right? Which is probably, you know, grudgingly the best rationale and justification for oversight by licensed boards. <laughs> you know, yeah. patients do get hurt. And um, so, yeah, I've read and heard about anecdotal accounts. I've encountered some in my psychedelic tourism, you know, very, very challenging um, in the psychedelic touristing industry because there's so little oversight of it out of the country. And, um, you know, they're probably smart enough not to have U.S. credentialed therapists involved. Um, and, uh, you know, I go to a lot of legal seminars, and they're always full of stories about what power these credentialing boards have and how dangerous it is for someone to go in there unrepresented. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty libertarian as far as licensure laws come, but I think, you know, given the, the large societal 
connotations associated with psychedelic use, I don't think there's going to be any way getting around those kind of regulations whenever this inevitably does come into the medical community, which I, I kind of uh, think is an eventuality at, at this point. So yeah, definitely strange things are going to be happening around that. Kind of transitioning again here, what would you suggest to providers um, do to mitigate against some of these outcomes? And what would you suggest if someone finds themselves currently in a similar situation where they um, have been advocating or are giving like integration services to patients? Well, most conservatively, um, if you value your license and your livelihood, uh, don't engage in underground activities. <laughs> now, if you insist upon doing that for whatever reason, you know, spiritual, whatever you have convinced yourself is justification, um, don't talk about it with your patients. <laughs> and, and, and again, probably don't talk about it with your professional peers because they may have a duty to report you. And, you know, not everybody takes those duties seriously. That's, mm -hmm. that's you know, their personal choice. But, you know, people gossip. And, um, you know, so really think about it. Second, carry malpractice insurance. Not all professions require it, but, you know, I would definitely carry malpractice insurance. And read up on your ethical standards. Read up on the laws and rules for your profession. Legislatures change these rules all the time. Um, and boards change their administrative rules all the time. So keep current and understand what, what good moral character means, right? Um, do no harm. And if you are in trouble or, you, or you're getting yourself involved in a contract with one of these clinics or you're unsure, I would get an attorney um, who is experienced in defending your type of license in your state. You know, those, that's a very narrow niche, and there's not usually a whole ton of attorneys that are really good at that, that understand the collateral consequences of what you say to your licensing board and how that can be used against you in the state or federal court. So um, find out who those guys are and women are and get one on retainer. <laughs> you know, if yeah. you're going to play this game, get a good attorney on retainer. So just kind of then looking forward, since you, you do have, um, you were a previous lawyer and have a law degree, what kind of laws or regulations do you think would be beneficial for both patients and providers whenever psychedelics do eventually get incorporated to medical practice? I think that legalization of, of psychedelics will help health providers um, and clients. And um, I think we have enough existing laws as it is, they can handle psychedelics becoming um, legal in the medical field. But I think a big key of it is going to be also legalizing it for the for the average person who wants to go and explore that. And so providers can have open conversations about that and about those experiences with those clients without mm -hmm. worrying about, am I encouraging this person to do something like take them out of Schedule 1, decriminalize them, yeah. regulate them? Yeah, and then just kind of from a, a more general um, sense here for the last couple of questions, what concerns you most about psychedelics just overall? Um, nothing really, except that pharmaceutical-grade psychedelics aren't legally, legally available, you know. Okay. Um, so people wanting to have that experience, that, you know, wanting to follow up on that human exploration and curiosity, you know, often end up taking drugs that aren't what they think they are. They have miserable experiences. Um, 
and they get hurt. And so I, that's the big thing is not being able to get pharmaceutical grade psychedelics. The and psychedelics then, in themselves, I don't have any big concern about that, except people who don't take precautions to do them in safe settings. <laughs> yeah, I think that's my biggest concern is that people are, are a, there's no good quality control, so they don't know what they're doing. And then they're, they're doing it, you know, in situations where they don't have a shaman or somebody that's done it before that can kind of help guide them through that. And so that's my only general concern about them, you know, legalizing it to yeah, the end. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you need a shaman. I think you need a friend, you know, a friend who's done it and a friend who has your best interest at heart. I'm not a big, um, I, I don't need to think you need fancy terms for someone <laughs> helping you in a psychedelic setting. And I, I think you're probably right there. I think the protocols from from Hopkins, at least, that they used in the Griffith studies kind of showed that, that they were able to train, you know, college graduates to be, you know, assistants during these trips. And so I don't think yeah. you need somebody, somebody that's done it thousands of times, but I, I just kind of use that as a, as, a, as a placeholder there. But shifting yeah. gears, I'm just curious, since you're somebody that is a, is a caseworker, social worker, they're kind of dealing with psychiatric patients to get your perspective on what concerns you most about how we, you know, handle psychiatric illness. I know my concerns as a provider, but just from the outside kind of maybe looking in or from a different perspective in the mental health community. Um, well, I think not having a single payer health system really complicates things. I don't like how we, how we pathologize being human and being unhappy or being in pain. Um, and I don't like how we settle for masking symptoms instead of really making bigger changes, um, you know, whether you're self-medicating or going to a doctor and getting the medication, you know, just to make the symptoms go away. Big systemic issues, you know. Yeah, there's that subset of the population that's just always going to have severe mental illness, and, and how we best target that treatment is, is always a, a big question. Yeah. Outside, outside of, of those kind of systemic issues, do you think increased psychedelic access and or use will be overall beneficial for medicine and even society at large? Well, that's a funny question because I believe we already have a ton of people doing it, right? <laughs> so I, I think we I think we have some people doing it. I don't know if it was a ton. I don't know the numbers on that actually. That's it's 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 pretty big and you know, over a lifetime. Yeah. You know, not necessarily weekly. <laughs> but um I think a lot of people have tried it and I think that um I think increased legal access will be incredibly beneficial. I think it'll reduce people turning this into something really taboo and therefore more exciting to do and try, you know? Mm -hmm. It'll just be something out there. And I think the more research we can do on psychedelics will be really beneficial. I think good research is like clean water. It benefits, you know, go on and on and on for generations. Um, and I think legalizing psychedelic access would be an incredible act of self-compassion and trust by the government to the people. And then kind of just off that same shoot, do you think that society was too overcautious, especially in light of the 1960s and 1970s, when it came to, to psychedelics based on the available evidence that they had at the time? Or do you think that um, that was the right amount at the time, and now that we know more, we can kind of loosen the reins on, on how we view psychedelics? Well, I think, you know, banning the psychedelics was part of the war on drugs, which is politically driven. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was um, it, it was uh, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? It was like punitive, incredibly punitive. 
Um, but I do think that anyone who's on psychedelics, you know, they're experiencing an altered state of consciousness that makes them vulnerable and unpredictable. So, um, and that they can pose a danger to themselves and to their companions. Um, but, you know, so can people who text while driving, right? Right. <laughs> they do it all the time. But um, in societies where these drugs have been used openly and legally, it, you know, it's usually limited to occasions with built-in safeguards. I mean, people aren't just out there doing it. And um, if there are, because there are people who are impulsive and do those things, you know, there should be consequences. And um, so I think, I think, you know, the war on drugs was very punitive and unnecessary and not, not, not scientifically justified. But I do think there's reason to be cautious. And then, you know, just here wrapping up, if you have any take-home points for the listeners or if you have any other thoughts on psychedelics, the law, patient care kind of surrounding psychedelics that you want to kind of make listeners aware of, that would be, that'd be great. Um, just my favorite Alan Watts quote, which is, quote, psychedelic experience is only a glimpse of genuine mystical insight, but a glimpse which can be matured and deepened by the various ways of meditation in which drugs are no longer necessary or useful. When you get the message, hang up the phone. For psychedelic drugs, are simply instruments like microscopes, telescopes, and telephones. The biologist does not sit with her eye permanently glued to the microscope. She goes away and works on what she has seen, unquote. <laughs> so my point being, it's also okay to say no, no thank you to psychedelics, whether it's the first time or the 50th. Listen to your gut and do be kind to yourself and other people. Well, I think that's an excellent way to, to finish up here. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. And I really appreciate your, your article and everything you've contributed so far. We hope to have you back. Well, thank you, Tyler, and good luck. I hope you've enjoyed today's interview. If you would like to submit an article for potential publication in the journal or you have further questions, please visit our website, journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry.org, or send us an email at journalofpsychedelicpsychiatry at gmail.com. To stay up to date on all the latest information regarding the journal, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening to New Perceptions.